This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save the King! Hello and welcome back to Pod Save the King. I am delighted to be joined by another special guest this week, making his Pod Save the King debut, Dr. Ed Owens, historian and author of The Family Firm, and his new book is After Elizabeth, Can the Monarchy Save Itself? So I'm sure we've got a very interesting conversation ahead of us. Ed, lovely to have you with us today. Thank you for having me on, Anne. So, I mean, it's quite a punchy title, your new book. I mean, how much danger do you think the monarchy is in? You're right. It is a a punchy title. Um, It was a book (laughs) that was not really uh, aimed to please anybody either, uh, in that I don't take the view either of royalists or republicans in this. I try to offer uh, a sort of a deep uh, assessment of where the monarchy has got to in 2023 based on, if you like, a long history over the last 250 years, where the monarchy has encountered, encountered, I should say, moments of real peril, real danger, and how it's overcome those to to essentially answer the question, is this uh, another one of those moments? And if if it is, uh, can the monarchy overcome its current problems in order to, if you like, set out its stall for the rest of this, the 21st century? So obviously, you know, the, the death of Queen Elizabeth II was something that we had all been, I guess, fearing and we knew it was coming. We obviously didn't want it to happen because we, I think we all probably quite like stability and the known and she'd been such a part of our fabric and become very much the, sort of the nation's grandmother, certainly in her, her later years, you know, bumps probably through the 90s particularly maybe and the Diana years, but the for me i was always wondering what would happen when she did die would there mm. be a time of big question of you know what is the purpose of this monarchy but in the sort of immediate aftermath it did all seem to transition quite smoothly there wasn't nearly as much questioning as i expected there might be and also about the role of you know camilla becoming queen that also never turned into sort of the big yeah, I don't know, it was a constitu- constitutional question, if you like, that mm-hmm. I thought it might have done. You're absolutely right that the uh, the aftermath of Elizabeth II's death, the, the transition wa- was a very smooth one. Um, there was an emphasis on continuity, on stability. I think every last detail had been worked out very, very carefully in terms of um, uh, Charles's accession, 
uh, and the the period that immediately followed uh, the Queen's death as well. Um, and I think that that helped helped, if you like, the public to accept the new king. Everything went off very very well. Uh, at the same time, whilst there was no great sort of constitutional moment questioning over whether the the new uh, the the new consort should be princess consort or queen consort as 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 that debate had been part of if you like the uh, the, the topics uh, one of the main topics ahead of the the accession one of the things we we immediately saw at the uh, off the back of the death of the the late queen was a drop off uh, in support for the monarchy among younger people and it's this loss of support especially under uh, among under twenty fives which I take as my starting point, really, in in my new book, After Elizabeth. Um, I do think this is potentially a very serious crisis for the monarchy. Um, historically, the young have been uh, a bit ambivalent about the royal family, but what has changed is as they've got older, they've, if you like, uh, become, if you like, more politically, a bit more conservative, and with that, more royalist. But that hasn't happened with the under 40s. Uh, the under 40s are much more uh, left-leaning, progressive in their politics than previous generations. And what that suggests is that that same generation isn't necessarily going to become more royalist as it ages. And I think that the real crisis for the monarchy relates to how it engages with this, this younger demographic. I think that's really interesting because if you look at the certainly the subjects that Prince William has chosen as being his his big topics around, you know, mental health. He's done a lot of work on for a long time with Kate and with Harry as well. And then um, his Earthshot Prize, you know, climate change with Greta Thunberg and the, the young people driving that conversation around climate crisis and the threat to the planet. So William has sort of seized on that as an area where he can use his his princely facilitating powers if you like to try and make a difference through Earthshot so he's engaging in that space that young people care about but does that carry over to the institution itself maybe you're absolutely right uh the way that William uh identified sort of key issues mental health environment climate as the issues that that really concern the young uh, was strategically very smart because you know he's been he's been doing that originally alongside Harry and then more recently with Catherine uh, for the best part of fifteen years, um, and yet it doesn't seem to carry a huge amount of weight with the under twenty fives as they currently exist, and I think this speaks to a bigger problem and this is something that I tackle uh, in the book that I think young people in general are very disenchanted not just with the monarchy, which they see as as a symbol, if you like, of of, of, a, of a bigger system, but with with the with British national life in general, and this is kind of unavoidable. There is a a real deep sense of malaise, and I think for your international listeners, this they probably they're probably aware of this, but the I think this sense of crisis that sort of more broadly characterises national life in Britain at the moment ha, has really affected younger people. They don't see a huge deal of opportunity for themselves um you know they they're burdened by uh, often by huge student debt they have public services which aren't working uh job opportunities are not like they were sort of even a decade ago uh stagnant salaries now 
this doesn't necessarily directly relate to the monarchy, but a lot of young people are feeling very disillusioned in general with 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 the nation at the moment. And you know, the 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 symbol at the heart of the nation is the monarchy. And so while William might be doing good work with his advocacy around uh, issues like environment, climate, and mental health, that's simply not resonating with the younger generation because they are so disaffected. And I think that's that's also part of this moment of crisis. Um, whether the monarchy can do anything, if you like, to fix the broader state of state of the of the country is another question entirely. It's something I deal with in the book. Uh, I suggest that there is potentially a very interesting role that the monarchy could play in trying to at least create a, a political system, promote a political system that would be more appealing to younger people. Um, and it would do so from its from its within its constitutional uh, role. That's a bit spicy, isn't it? Like it is. It as is. Charles, as even as prince, he was always getting in trouble for getting involved with politics. So trying to create a political system that mm. seems, you know, that's the polar opposite. You're absolutely right. Um, I I don't advocate a, a monarchy that is, if you like, more politically active, but plays a sort of a bigger role as a symbol of our democracy. Uh, and promotes our democratic values. The reason why uh, King Charles, previously Prince Charles, when he was Prince of Wales, got in so much bother um, around his Black Spider memos that he was writing to civil servants and government ministers, even to the prime minister, uh, was because he was taking highly politicized topics and presenting an opinion on those topics. I'm not suggesting that the monarchy for a moment involve itself in party politics, but rather resume a role, actually, that it has played historically in trying to promote democratic values. Um, this was something that was deeply associated with the monarchy in the 1930s. It was seen as the embodiment of Britain's democratic spirit at, at a time when British democracy was threatened by totalitarianism uh, in Europe, both from, from Hitler, but also Benito Mussolini in Italy. Um, I would like to see a monarchy that, that, if you like, takes that role as uh, a symbol of of constitutional democracy, of, of a promoter of democratic values, really seriously again. And I set out in the book how how it might do that. And while the plan might be a very ambitious one that I set out, um, it would ultimately be within the, if you like, the constitutional realms of what the monarchy already does. What kind of practical, real things like what examples of behavior or um actions would you see as as fulfilling that mm. so it's it's quite a sort of a big big idea but i'm trying mm -hmm. to work out what it what it would look like in reality okay so there are lots of practical uh suggestions um which i suggest are pragmatic uh which e would which, which could even uh revolve around um appointing a committee to work in the name of the crown uh, that would be tasked with promoting uh, certain democratic values. But one thing that the monarchy could do very quickly um, and very directly in order to, if you like, promote uh, democratic values is to be more transparent. Transparency is at the, the heart of our uh, democratic political system. And yet in recent years, there's been a lack of transparency in government uh, around key decision making. Uh, there have been a lot of uh, accusations uh, made about uh, more recent governments that they have engaged in corrupt practices, that they've been 
doing things, um, if you like, behind closed doors, whether it's having parties at number 10 Downing Street or whether it's communicating um, with, with, with government ministers during moments of crisis via things like WhatsApp, which suggests that there is a lack of transparency at the top of our political system. And this is a problem. Um, and it raises real questions over the vitality of, of, of the British political system. Now, the monarchy is also an institution that is 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 not very transparent, whether it's because it uh, it keeps the royal archives uh, sort of carefully guarded. Um, I've had the, the great pleasure of working in the archives uh, and the privilege of working alongside its brilliant team of archivists, but I'm one of very few people that have been given access uh, to the archives. So why not open up more of the archives uh, so that the public can see uh, and learn about the history of monarchy more freely? You know, we, we, we're going to have to wait many years yet before we we even get, get any disclosure regarding the papers uh, relating to the late Queen, Elizabeth II. You know, why should we be waiting? It would be very interesting for historians to know more about how the monarchy evolved through the 1950s, the 1960s and 1970s, bearing in mind this is more than 50 years ago. Um, but just as importantly, the monarchy isn't very transparent in terms of how it in, engages with uh, with Westminster, and in particular with with leading politicians in the country. Uh, we know, for example, that Queen Elizabeth II exercised considerably more influence behind the scenes than was ever made public during her long reign. Um, Anne Toomey, Peter Hennessy, these are some of the constitutional experts who have said that a, a, a constitutional airing or a, a constitutional sort of um, a letting in of, of light onto the constitution is long overdue. Uh, Elizabeth II could have done more to let us know what she actually did in terms of her behind the scenes role, but we we haven't learned much about that. It's been kept a carefully guarded secret, for example, her interactions with prime ministers. And I would like to see a monarchy that is more transparent, that tells us what it's doing behind the scenes, that lets daylight into, if you like, the the, the shadows in order to set a good example to the rest of the British political system. Inter very interesting. Um, going back to the what you were saying before about young people, I don't know. Do you is there a historical trend that where a government is? I mean, let's say let's say better functioning, because I think the number of prime ministers we've been through recently suggests that we haven't had a hugely well functioning government, and also one that is probably more appealing to young people. If it's a government running the country who young people are more approving of, do they then also tend to be more approving of the monarchy? Do those things go hand in hand? And the monarchy, to a certain extent, is a is a victim of the rest of the chaos that has been has been going on in the country in the last few years. The monarchy is, if you like, a hostage to the fortunes of the rest of the nation. And when Britain is is doing well, it tends to be the case that people tend to be more proud of the, of the country and of the symbols of the country, like the monarchy. Um, it does seem to be the case that we've gone through this extraordinarily difficult period in British national life over the last seven, eight years, um, we, with, with Brexit being, if you like, the crescendo of, of, of uh, this, this, this moment of difficulty. But really, th there were pre-existing problems that go back you know, at least another decade as well uh, to the uh, to the, the economic crisis of 2007, 2008. Um, it, it's, if the country was doing better as a whole, if the political system looked less corrupt, 
if the political system seemed to function in such a way that it engaged ordinary people and ordinary people felt that their voices were being heard, I think the monarchy would be faring a lot better because I think younger people in general would have a great deal more confidence in the system. Uh, and, you know, what remains to be seen is whether the system is revitalized, whether it is re-energized in such a way that benefits the monarchy. What I set out to do, perhaps not entirely successfully in the book, is, is to argue that the monarchy can play a key role, not only in in sort of modernizing itself, but helping with this, this if you like, this uh, this re-energizing, this revitalization of the, the broader political system as well. Um, of course, the monarchy's hands are tied to a certain extent. Uh, there is very little that the king can directly do. He, he can't sort of walk into the, uh, the Palace of Westminster and declare that he wants a changed political system. But one of the things I, I set out in the book very clearly that if we want change, if we want a changed monarchy, then we as uh, citizens must demand that as well. Um, this assumption that the monarchy must be the institution to modernize itself, um, that, that modernization must come from within is entirely wrong. Um, if we want a more modern forward-looking monarchy that plays, if you like, um, an active role as defender of our democratic values, then we can demand such a monarchy. But how you, if you like, generate the, the political momentum for such a change is very difficult. It's something I address in the conclusion of my book, and I hope so. I, I hope that I do so successfully. Um, but I know that when I've talked about this, uh, these ideas with other commentators, they've they, they've accused me of being uh, sort of too aspirational, too idealistic. But change has to come from somewhere, because arguably, if things don't change, then this could be a, an existential situation for the British monarchy. Are there lessons from history of how the monarchy has changed, either because? It has been forced from the outside or it has anticipated a change and, and been proactive in it. I mean, obviously, obviously there was a time way back when there was a lot of fighting went on and there was quite a major change for the monarchy because you'd put a different person on the throne because you'd booted out the old one. But in terms of, I don't know, I guess the, the sort of more um, in the more settled last few centuries, the monarchy has reinvented itself either through external requirement or presumably internal innovation. Are there good lessons for Charles and William from the past? There are two key moments that I explore in some detail throughout the four sections uh, of After Elizabeth, and they are the transformation of the monarchy under uh, Prince Albert and, and Queen Victoria, where they essentially uh, ruled as joint monarchs. Uh, that was essentially the way that they they reigned together. And then again, under uh, George V from 1910 through really until the middle 1930s. Um, if we take the first case study, Victoria and Albert inherited a monarchy scandalized, really, by decades of, of a sort of elite debauchery. Um, the previous monarchs, uh, none of them had been faithful to their wives. Uh, it was also the case that there was a lot of political misjudgment that had that had characterised the reigns of, uh, of Victoria's uncles William the uh, Fourth and George the um, Fourth, and the monarchy was 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 in very low public esteem when um, Victoria came to the throne in 1837. She didn't realise just how imperiled the monarchy was 
uh, at the start of her reign. But then she marries Albert. And Albert really is the man who saved the British monarchy in that he recognises that a dramatic modernisation of the institution will be required um, if it is to establish or re-establish its popularity among the people who matter. And the great change in the 1830s and 1840s is that uh, as a result of the 1832 Reform Act, uh, you now have middle-class people across Britain who can vote. And if those middle-class people had wanted to, they could have they could have put political pressure on government to get rid of the monarchy once and for all. Uh, Albert realises that the middle classes are the people that matter because there's a lot more of them than the old aristocracy. So he and Victoria work together to transform the institution into a much more middle class looking institution. This is when they the royals start dressing in ordinary middle class uh, garb. Um, it's when they do away with quite a lot of the the, the, the old pomp and circumstance um, of monarchy. It's when they uh, professionalize uh, what royal ceremonies are left because they know that these things have to have to sort of work well in the eyes of this middle class electorate. Um, and it's also when they put on on public view uh, royal family domesticity in new ways. So the idea of the family monarchy becomes essential to to Victoria and Albert's joint reign. Um, and they promote this idealized vision of uh, the royal family gathered around Christmas trees uh, with their children. It's all a way of, of getting the middle classes to buy into the virtuous idea of monarchy, the idea that the, the royals set a high moral example to the rest of the country. And most crucially, Anne, it works. So that was a period of crisis. Which, which really saw dramatic modernization. And, you know, some of those things I've just talked about are still with us very much in 2023, the idea of the family monarchy, for example. So things haven't evolved that much from the days of Victoria and Albert. If we just take the second case study of George V. So George V came to the throne in 1910, 1910 during a constitutional crisis. I'm not going to go into that in, in detail because it's really complicated. I, I talk about it in the fourth section of, of the book. But essentially, he, in, in, he inherits... Um, a situation. The, the crown is is secure. His father, Edward VII, was extremely popular, except political crisis after political crisis threatens to destabilise the monarchy. The, the period from 1910 right through, arguably, to 1933 is 23 long years of crisis. Um, we had the constitutional crises involving the House of Lords, Ireland. We then have the First World War. We have a resurgence in republicanism during the, the First World War and anti-monarchism espoused by people like H.G. Wells, the, the, the popular author, but by many people across the country. And there's this feeling at Buckingham Palace that, that, this, that republicanism is on the rise, that communism, because of what's happened in Russia in 1917 with the, uh, with, with the abdication of the, of the Tsar, um, and then, of course, they're assassinated, the Romanovs, in 1918. King George V is, is feeling extremely threatened by the early 1920s. And worse, worse is still to come in that the 20s and then the early 30s experienced this prolonged period of economic depression, uh, where again, you know, the, the, the extremes on the, the British left and British right are gaining ground. This is, this is a period which sees the rise of communism, which is, of course, completely anti-monarchy, as well as the rise of fascism. And throughout this period, George V is coming up with new ways to make his monarchy more popular. Because we talked about the middle classes in relation to, to Victoria and Albert, but after 1918, 
British voters, British working class voters get the right to vote. So if you like, the story of the 20th century monarchy is the story of how the royal family engender support among the working class masses. Um, and George V comes up with all these ingenious new ways of engaging with them. Uh, you know, the, the, the modern royal civic tour where they go out to, where the royals go out to towns, cities, villages, where they, where they shake the hands of ordinary people. This is all part of George V's vision of monarchy. The idea that the royals attend sporting events like the FA Cup final. This is George V's monarchy. He knows that the people watching the FA Cup, the people listening to it on the radio, are working class audiences. Um, this is the period where he uses philanthropy and charity as a way of engaging with working class people who, let us not forget, are the most impoverished in, in British society, who need the help of, of do-gooders. So the royal do-gooder is a, a part of George V's monarchy. So he comes up with all of these ways to engage working class people. And remarkably, Britain remains this relatively, when you compare it to Italy, France, Germany, this relatively stable country through the 20s and 30s. Of course, the, the, the next crisis is going to be the abdication crisis in 1936. That's a whole other story. But you have two great examples there of monarchs and consorts and their consorts who transformed the role of the monarchy, recognizing that there was a threat and that they had to do things differently. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you think there is a person, which person is it, within the current royal family who has the capacity and the vision and the influence and the drive to instigate? It might not be the change that you think it wants, but who has that ability to transform this monarchy to, yeah. I mean, it strikes me as probably your equivalent to Charles and let's put William in that bucket as well. Um, rather than the working class or the middle class for you, it's, it's the young people. But whichever group of people it is that the monarchy needs to re-inspire and recapture now, who is the person in this royal family who can do that for them? Just, I'll just say this. You know, I, I, I set out this program, if you like, to to try and re-inspire the young with with monarchy. Um, these these are ideas. These are this is food for thought, if you like. Um, uh, but I would like to see, I'd actually like to see King Charles be the person that that that, be, that, that is the change, change maker. There seems to be this assumption that the person who who must be the change maker is William because he's already presented himself as a, as a modernizing force. We know that immediately after the coronation earlier this year in May, that he he said even then that he would do things differently when it when it came to his coronation that he he expected to to have a sort of a more dressed down occasion, something much more informal. Um, but I think King Charles III is uniquely placed to do things really differently. Let's not forget that it's it's his relationship with his second son that has gone so sort of tragically wrong. Um, and whatever you think of Harry and Meghan, and and I again, I, you, you from the book you'll see that I don't take a side. I'm quite critical of them, but in in other ways, I think they they were mistreated by sections of the British press as well. But whatever you think of them. 
the the story is a slightly tragic one because what it what it what it has has damaged is this idea of a family monarchy this idea that this is a, a united group who embody if you like the best of of british family life um originally king charles iii's uh, reign was uh sort of was going to be based around him being supported by his his two trust, trusty lieutenants william and harry but when that went so disastrously wrong in early 2020 because of Harry and Meghan's de decision to leave uh, Britain, it really put paid to that vision of a family monarchy. And then, of course, we've had uh, the Sussexes airing their dirty laundry in public for the best part of three years. And again, it's done much damage to that, that narrative of, of happy family life. So why not? as I suggest in part three of my book, do away with the family narrative once and for all. We don't need to have this big royal family uh, presenting themselves as, if you like, moral exemplars. You know, it, King Charles is uniquely placed to sort of do things differently because he knows firsthand that the ideal of the family rarely sort of matches the reality of the family monarchy. Um, he went through the 1980s and 1990s. Um, you know, he, he he had his private life splashed all across the front pages of the newspapers. He must understand how personally damaging and humiliating that must feel. So why, if you like, continue to promote such a narrative when it can do so much damage to the monarchy? Why not do things differently? So I'd like to, and I, and I think, I think he's really well placed to do things in lots of different respects very differently as well. He's a great champion of, uh, of music, of, of British culture, of the countryside. So why not reorientate monarchy around those kind of themes. Um, environment is a really difficult thing for him to talk about because it's becoming more politically contentious by the day in the UK. Um, and both he and William risk getting into sort of constitutional bother if they are at, at any point seen to have taken a political position on, for example, the net zero target. They both talked about it in the past. I would suggest they leave that. Now, we know that they're that they care about the climate environment, but it is a, an issue riven with complexity and potential sort of uh, potential problems. So there are other things that they can do which are focused on the UK, which could have a, uh, a, a really beneficial impact on the state of the nation and at the same time ensure the survival of the institution of monarchy. Do you think William will be king? Do you think George will be king? How, what, what's your prediction for the future? It's a it's the question I keep getting asked, and I, my answer is always the same. Which I think, in the short term, the monarchy is secure. I think we will see King William V crowned. I think um, I think he has a great opportunity to modernise alongside his father. Because one of the the things I set out in the book is that this should be a joint project between father and eldest son, that they have a real opportunity to to work together to, if you like, prepare the monarchy for the middle of the 21st century, because I think modernization is drastically overdue. Um, one of my only complaints really about Elizabeth II's monarchy is that she did very little to modernize the institution in the last 30 years. She has left it to others uh, to do that. And I, and I don't think they've necessarily done it in the right ways. Um, William, I think, is secure as king. George, I think a lot of questions hang over hang over him. I've also suggested, and this is this is quite controversial, that King Charles, King Charles's reign should last between 10 and 15 years. And if he is still living, he should hand over the reins whilst William is still young enough, handsome enough, sort of 
uh, forward thinking enough to really want to change the institution as well. Abdication has been something that the, the British monarch, well, the last British monarch would never have considered, given what happened to her father uh, involving uh, and involving her, her uncle Edward VIII. But abdication is a very popular idea in Europe, and it works to, to generationally modernize the institution because you bring forward the younger, the younger royals to, if you like, re-inject life, energy, and ideas into the institution right when they need it. But I think King Charles has a, a brilliant opportunity to, to modernize the institution. Um, I think the fact that we know he cares so much about the country really plays in his favor. Um, and I think he can really emphasize that idea of care and a desire to, to see the country evolve in such a way that, that younger people feel in, inspired and, and proud of their country and equally inspired and proud of, of their monarchy. I think, he, I think he has a real opportunity there. Well, thank you very much, Ed. It's been absolutely brilliant talking to you and well, and hearing all your ideas. And it'll be fascinating to see how Charles, we're just at the very beginning, you know, we're just over a year in, but seeing how he does um, evolve the monarchy, hopefully, and, and starts doing it his own way and gradually, um, gradually or radically changes it. So thank you for joining us and um, talking with our listeners today. My very great pleasure. Thank you for having me on. Listeners, I hope you've enjoyed that um, that interview. Thank you for joining us, as ever. And until next time... Pod save the king!